Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Commons People this week, Parliament returns to ugly scenes. And let me tell the Prime Minister that they often quote his words, surrender act, betrayal, traitor, and I for one am sick of it. What happens now? If he wants an election, get an extension and let's have an election. And despite the chaos, party conferences roll on. He's a, a servant of the Labour Party and of the members. I am too. And I think that it's important that the members get their voices heard and get their voices heard over this conference. Hello and welcome to an emergency Commons people. I'm Arj Singh and we weren't meant to be here this week, but we are, (laughs) given the week we've had. So joining me is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. And we've also got two friends of the podcast. First up, Brexit and parliamentary expert at the Institute for Government, Maddie Timont-Jack. Hello. Hi Maddie. And we've also got the director of the UK in a changing Europe think tank, Anand Menon. Hi, Arj. Hey, how's it going? Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, MPs returned to Westminster on Wednesday after the Supreme Court sensationally ruled that Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament was unlawful and void. But unfortunately, the Brexit debate almost immediately reached a new low as the Prime Minister dismissed friends of the murdered MP Joe Cox who are asking for him to tone down his inflammatory language. Let's hear an exchange between Johnson and the Labour MP, Paula Sheriff, who was sitting under the shield that commemorates Cox in the Commons. I genuinely do not seek to stifle robust debate, but this evening the Prime Minister has continually used pejorative language to describe an Act of Parliament passed by this House. And I'm sure that you would agree, Mr Speaker, that we should not resort to using offensive, dangerous or inflammatory language for legislation that we do not like. And we stand here, Mr Speaker, under the shield of our departed friends, with many of us in this place subject to death threats and abuse every single day. And let me tell the Prime Minister that they often quote his words, surrender act, betrayal, traitor, and I for one am sick of it. We must moderate our language and it has to come from the Prime Minister first. So I would be interested in hearing his opinion. He should be absolutely ashamed of himself. I think, Mr. Speaker, I have to tell you, Mr. Speaker, I, 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 I have to say, Mr. Speaker, I've never heard such humbug in all my life. Because uh, the, the, the reality is, this is a, this is a bill. Uh, Paul, I was in the Commons last night watching all this unfold. Uh, there weren't many journalists around because there was a Downing Street briefing on, um, but it was genuinely quite distressing, just on a human level. The debate's become about Brexit and it's become about Joe Cox's memory, which I think is incorrect because basically you had these women who fear for their safety raising concerns about it. And whether you agree about the term Surrender Act or not, the reaction from Boris Johnson was to press the button, push the bruise, essentially. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it was clearly calculated 
so what what is he thinking and, and what is he trying to achieve? Well, it's definitely deliberate. I mean, he used that phrase Surrender Act 15 times. He said Capitulation Act at one point, Humiliation Act. So he's, there's a strategy number 10, which is to keep saying this, because, as Prime Minister said in the 1922 meeting of backbenchers just now, he thinks it's getting, quotes, cut through with the voters. Uh, he thinks he can frame this debate as, you know, the MPs are stopping me getting what we, I want and what you want, leave voters. They're, they just want to surrender to Brussels. It's a bigger picture. It's not just necessarily this Ben Act, which, you know, you can actually legitimately say the Ben Act does indeed surrender power to Brussels because um, it basically hands a lot of the, the, the timetable for, for any extension over to Brussels. They have the final say. They already had quite a lot of power, Brussels, but the, this really gives them lots of power. And Anand can correct me on that a lot later. But, I mean, uh, it's not about the Ben Act. It's about the bigger picture of our... MPs trying to surrender generally to Brussels and that's why that phrase is being used. Now you can say when it, in the context of Joe Cox that he really misread the mood of Paula Sheriff, there's no question um, and the question was, that was that just a sort of a, a sort of tunnel vision on his part, just ploughing on. It did on. seem like that, to be fair. Yeah, was it that, rather than anything really sort of s- deeply, deeply cynical to, to provoke another row? And I think it probably was just tunnel vision. Um, because a lot is said about Dominic Cummings, but ultimately it's the Prime Minister that is setting the tone, and the Prime Minister believes wholeheartedly in this strategy. It's not as if he's a puppet of Dominic Cummings. You might say he's been captured by Cummings's messaging and, and tactics, but it all stops with the Prime Minister. And you've just seen Dominic Cummings. I have in indeed, the comments, in Port Colisau. And there was a little fracas between him and Carl Turner, the Labour MP. Uh, Carl Turner went up to him and had a real go at him and said, basically, you're responsible for a lot of this uh, this language, the die-in-the-ditch type language, um, and you should be discerned with yourself, that kind of thing. And Cummings said, I don't know who you are. Um, and oh, it's like, you know, that's, a, again, dismissing that's it. He said that to a few people. Yeah. But anyway, Mad- Ma- Maddie, Greg at this Park. point, it might be useful to talk about the Ben Act. Mm-hmm. Is it a surrender act? What, what the Ben Act says is that if MPs don't approve a deal or no deal by the 19th of October, Johnson has to go to Brussels and ask for an extension. Now, there's been a big debate about whether the EU can set the terms of that extension. So in the Ben Act, it says, so, so the Ben Act specifically says they want an extension to the 31st of January. The Act then says if the EU um, propose an alternative date, then the Prime Minister does have to agree to it, unless within two days the House of Commons actively rejects it. So there is a chance for MPs to say no, they don't like the sort of offer from the EU. Although having said that, that's a very tight turnaround. I think some people aren't clear whether there actually would be enough time for MPs to reject the date before the Prime Minister would have to agree. Um, but th- th- that's essentially the terms of it. And we, and we know that there is a majority in the Commons who do not want no deal. There's a majority in favour of an extension. I don't think there's a majority for anything else other than an extension at this stage. Um, but that is that is what the Parliament has said that they want. Um, and that, that But obviously Obviously, that's not what Johnson wants, and that's why he he wants to portray it um, as this surrender act. And were you watching last night, or have you caught up? What did you make of it? I was in there for a bit of it, actually. Yeah, uh, oh, and I, I found it unwatchable. At a certain yeah, it was point. horrible. It was just yeah, it was horrible. I mean, people, so many people, so genuinely angry and upset. It just felt like you were sort of intruding on personal grief at a certain mm. point, which is the point mm. to which I left. But yeah, it was not something I want to see again. And I mean, you and I have. Grew up in West Yorkshire, just a few miles away from where Joe Cox was murdered. You've been hosting fringes at Labour Conference on our divided society. Why do you think, do you think language matters? 
Yeah, absolutely language matters. But if you're asking me why I think the language has deteriorated, I think there are lots of reasons. I think one reason is in a fragmenting party system, you need fewer votes to win a majority. So there is less incentive for either party to reach out beyond their core voters. And I think you see that in both. I mean, that was there in the language at Labour conference. It was there again on the Conservative benches. Uh, I think both parties have been captured by a certain section of their potential voters. That's to say the members who tend to be out, you know, out of touch with their median voter. So that drives it as well. And finally, of course, there's the Brexit divide. So there are three things working in favour of this sort of coarsening of political language. And it's very hard to row back on. I mean, the one, the one thing I, I take away from this week is that bad behaviour is basically contagious. <laughs> and if one side's engaging in it, the other side will as well. What was curious last night was that Speaker Burko did not intervene early on. He could have nipped it in the bud. He could have he could have actually done something about it. A couple of times he did weigh in and sort of say, well, both sides need to be... Yeah. He wasn't pointed, but, was, but then ev- then eventually after Paula Sheriff's question and a couple of more questions, he did kind of make a little speech and yeah. said, weigh your language, but it didn't have any effect whatsoever. I was surprised he didn't do that earlier. And but it might just be a human thing. He'd been sitting in that chair since 11.30 a.m. And, you know, he's famously strong bladder. Um, I mean, he didn't move at all. I suspect he was just too knackered and missed a lot of the some of the, some of the spikier phrases that Johnson used. I suspect he just simply wasn't paying attention. I mean... Johnson's ultimate goal is to deliver Brexit on October 31st. Do you think exchanges... I don't think that's true. <laughs> All right, well, it's to deliver, deliver Brexit, let's say. Forget the date. I think, I think everyone is thinking about the election. Yeah. And that's what, but Brexit has become totally instrumental to both sides here. Everyone is thinking about the election to come and what strategy gets you from here to there with the biggest chance of winning. And, and so the, the eye is on the end of November which I think accounts for a lot of the weirdness that's going on at the moment. I think that's absolutely Sorry. right. We're in real election mode. There's no question. I mean, people coming out of that 22 committee this morning, deeply um, uh, sort of robust opponents to, to Boris, people who've hated him for ages, not on his wing of the party. One very senior former cabinet minister who really has no time for him came out and said, actually, I thought Boris was right. Um, I thought the mood in there showed that we're, we're coalescing around him. Yeah, there are people on the Labour benches who are trying to exploit this, almost weaponise Joe Cox, and they felt that actually they needed to get behind him. And I thought that was quite... That shows we're in election mode. Yeah. It shows we're not in normal territory see, anymore. See, the thing is, it, it didn't transpire like that. Rachel Reeves stood up and just made a point about inflammatory language and how we need to tone it down, and then asked a question about something else. And then Johnson pointedly then used inflammatory language in response to that when answering the question. Ali McGovern then got up and, and mentioned Joe Cox but asked a question about something else. Yep. Johnson chose to respond by using inflammatory language to further inflame the tensions, Yeah, which was interesting. It was, but I, I think he, he that's because he was in this tunnel vision about using surrender, 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 and it's like Joe Cox's memory was collateral damage. Yeah, well, well I mean... Let's flip it around then. If, if you think everyone's focused on an election, if Boris Johnson doesn't deliver Brexit by October 31st, it's going to hurt his election prospects. But to deliver it, well, the only way he can really deliver it by October 31st now, we think, is getting a deal. And last night isn't going to help him, given how he's going to get, how he needs to get a deal through. What, 
what do you think, Maddie? He can't get it through on Tory votes alone, can he? Yeah, well, no, exactly. He doesn't. He doesn't have the numbers in the Commons, and um, I mean, it's really difficult to predict how numbers are going to play out. I've tried to do this maths many times, and I think each time I sort of come up short. Um, I mean, at the moment, he will he will need to rely on some votes from Labour. We pretty much know that, and there are a group of Labour MPs who have previously said that they would be supportive of a deal, so sort of Labour MPs for a deal. Um, I think it's difficult to say at this stage how the language last night will have gone down with them and whether that makes it much harder. I think the thing that I find quite interesting and um, one of the big challenges for Johnson is that actually, you know, there are two stages to getting a deal through. There's both a meaningful vote, which, you know, is just a sort of simple approval vote of the deal itself, which I think it's probably easier to win um, because you can say, look, we've, we've sort of got what we want from Brussels. This is what the deal is going to do. But then after that, he's still got to pass this withdrawal agreement bill, this headache of a bill that's going to be complex, controversial and long. And he has barely any time to do it at all. Um, I think, you know, between the 19th of October and 31st of October, at the moment, there'll be eight scheduled sitting days. That's not much time for scrutiny. But also, if MPs don't like the look of it, they can just turn around and say, no, not passing it. And so what we quite interesting is if some MPs are willing to back a meaningful vote before the 19th of October, that deadline in the Ben Act, which means he doesn't have to ask for an extension. And then when it comes to bringing in the bill, he just can't get the numbers or will have to try and find other people to make up the numbers he might lose between the meaningful vote and the WAB itself. Um, Otherwise, if the bill doesn't go through, the government cannot ratify the deal and we leave without a deal on the 31st of October. And the Ben Act has no impact. So I think that's going to be the sort of interesting bit is whether getting it you know, pr- approval for a deal in principle is enough to then get the legislation over the line or whether he then has to turn to other MPs and say, for example, to Labour or more moderates, look, you don't like the deal, but otherwise you've got no deal, so you've got to back this legislation. And there is a, that's a really good point because there's a conspiracy theory going around, which is obviously some hardline Eurosceptics are planning to vote for the meaningful vote in the full knowledge that they'll then pull their support for the actual legislation and run down the clock. And that's what people around Dominic Grieve, obviously they've been alive to this issue um, and they're not stupid as they've proved in the courts and in drafting that legislation. Um, So there's a lot of talk now about them drafting a new piece of legislation which would remove that um, real serious problem of a loophole. How quickly they do that is really interesting. I've been surprised that they haven't gone for an SO24 today to try and buy some time for the to buy basically control of the order paper next week and then try and introduce this stuff because they're running out of time. What if the PM next week, I don't think he will, but he could, what if he prorogued next week then and, and said, I'm going to have a Queen's speech a bit earlier? Now, there are lots of reasons we can talk about why that might not work, particularly because of the Queen's diary. Um, but just imagine he did. Then, you know, I'm surprised that people like Grieve and Ben haven't uh, sort of showed their hand yet, but maybe they're being cannier than I think. It's quite. I mean, think back to the last week of March when Theresa May made that televised address where she basically set the people up against Parliament and everyone was going, that's a bit weird because she needs their votes the next day. There's a bit of a similarity to yesterday there, except I think there's one fundamental difference. I'm no longer convinced that Number 10 thinks it's necessarily in their interest to bring a deal back uh, for at least two reasons. One, because Labour MPs are not going to be minded to vote for it at the moment, partly because of the language and the tone and the the polarisation, partly too because why would you give a Conservative Prime Minister an electoral gift right before an election? It makes no sense. And if there's one thing Labour Labour MPs might lend their votes to get a deal over the line, I'm not sure they'll lend their votes to help the Prime Minister win an election at which their seats are at stake. So 
I'm kind of thinking that the calculus has changed a little bit in number 10 now and that actually the other, the other thing I should say is if he comes back with a deal, he's vulnerable to the Brexit party. Because the deal will contain compromise, and the tone of the Brexit party is we don't want any sort of deal at all. Okay, so anything he brings back will leave him open on the flank he's trying to win. So I wonder anymore whether actually Number 10 is serious at all about this idea of A, getting a deal, and B, bringing it back to Parliament, because it doesn't seem to make any political sense. And I, I wonder whether they're not setting themselves up for a manufactured showdown at the European Council, yeah, followed by the extension letter. Um, we've come on to it already, but the PM has attempted to get out of this straitjacket imposed on him by Parliament by trying to goad the opposition into an election. But the message was very clear in response from a united opposition, no election until no deal is off the table. Um, let's hear Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer explain that. Mr Speaker, anyone watching today's proceedings and, and still thinking that somewhere lurking there's a clever and cunning plan to get through the chaos of the government's own making needs to think again. The government's lost six out of six votes in Parliament. The Prime Minister's lost his majority. He's lost his case in the Supreme Court. The Chancellor chance of the Duchy of Lancaster said on the radio this morning the Prime Minister's a born winner. I'm glad he hasn't... I'm glad he hasn't lost his sense of humour. But, but this isn't, Mr Speaker, this isn't a game. And for the government to be five weeks away from leaving the EU without a plan is unforgivable. There's, there's some talk now that Labour don't want an election until spring, Paul. Do you think that's possible? There is, that's going round. Um, I find it inconsistent with everything that Corbyn said. I mean, it's one thing to try and delay an election until after October 31st. It's another to then delay it until the spring. If you've been constantly saying we need an election, we need to get rid of this wicked government. Um, so although it is going round, there's no question. And there, are, there is a strand of opinion which says let's do the referendum first. But I, it is a real minor view within Labour. Um, I think, yeah, I think Anand's got a point, which is that you can imagine the scenario where we're Basically, Boris is going to try and blame Brussels for any impasse that happens later, uh, next month and then somehow get beyond... The bit I don't understand, obviously, is how we can avoid the, the Ben Act and 30, October 31st. I mean, Number 10 obviously think... And Charlie Faulkner has talk, dismissed this before in this podcast. Number 10 think there's a way around that. I don't know what it is. Um, if it is some sort of uh, counting legal device, you would have thought the lawyer's... Uh, I've been poring over it in quite a lot of detail by now. Um, I don't know what that device could be. Well, Maddie, you've talked about the withdrawal agreement bill. Is there anything else you must have been looking at? This? Yeah, I mean, I'll say I'm not a lawyer, so so there might be lawyers have seen something I haven't, but it does seem quite tricky, particularly given that, you know, we know lawyers have been involved in drafting the bill, very intelligent lawyers who have been thinking about all the ways this could be played. I mean, there's been some suggestion even sort of beyond the conspiracy of Brexiteers backing the meaningful vote but actually number 10 saying to Brexiteers back us in the meaningful vote and then we'll never bring in the bill which to me seems like quite a big leap but I guess in theory could be the case I mean he's obviously said he doesn't want to ask for the extension the other option for him is just to resign and say I'm not going to do it you know say potentially say right leader of the opposition you come in you do it um, but again that seems quite difficult I don't know whether there's anything else that they've been thinking about but as I, say, I haven't heard or seen anything um, that I can think of. I suppose you've got to think in terms of a lesser of two evils. For Boris Johnson, neither choice is ideal. You're almost certainly going to have to ask for, or a civil servant is going to have to ask for, that extension. Uh, but it's marginally better to fight the Brexit party, having been forced against your will, kicking and screaming to do the extension, than to have to do it 
in addition to having tabled a Brexit deal, that the Brexit party are going to attack as well. So at least you keep your Brexit credentials le- relatively intact that way. It's still not ideal. You I have mean, that card in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, you know, the striking thing about the 29th of March was how quickly support for the Tories went down in the polls thereafter, because people might not follow the details, but they do think, hang on, weren't they meant to have done something by now? So he's still vulnerable to that. There's no no two ways about that. I mean, Nigel Farage will be back in action, attacking the Conservatives and attacking Boris Johnson for not keeping his word. But that's probably slightly preferable to have giving them a withdrawal agreement they hate and the extension. So it might be just two unpalatable options you choose the least unpalatable. And that would explain why Johnson is so determined to use the language he's using to bring us back to the first point. He's so terrified of the Brexit party. He knows he's got to plough this furrow. He's got to, you know, I'm pretty sure they've focus grouped it and got internal polling that surrender is a really good word for him to use. And it, boy, does it reduce the, the Brexit party's vote. And But there's also another element in there, which is about Johnson not apologising for what he said yesterday. A normal Prime Minister would say, just as Emily Thornberry did this week, you know, mm. I, I said the thing about the Taliban, I apologise, she made a really proper apology in the House, actually addressed it to Lib Dem MPs. Why wouldn't Boris do that? First, because we're in election mode, but secondly, it's in his nature not to apologise for things. Um, and I talked to someone who knows him really well, and they said actually part of it stems from him not wanting to talk about his private life Whenever he's asked a question about his private life, he clams up and never talks about it. And so he looks really shifty. Um, And that bleeds into the rest of the way he deals with politics. He can be shifty, cannot give you the right answer. He'll dissemble. Um, So there's an element of that as well, about not apologising over the whole use of the language. I think that's, and, and in a way, that's the flip side or mirror image of Jeremy Corbyn being incredibly stubborn about anti Semitism. It, it's a sort of it's strange to compare them, but actually Corbyn was accused of something he, he as violently disagrees with, which is racism. And he finds it really offensive to be accused of racism. So he digs in, it gets defensive and doesn't address some of the issues. Boris is the same. He's accused of abusing the memory of Joe Cox. And he, th- he thinks, God, I'm a normal, you know, a human being. How, yeah. how dare you? So I'm going to dig in. And so, I don't know, that's where we are. And then you get in the spiral of sort of, going down and down where we are, unfortunately. That notion of the sort of interdependence of Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn is a really interesting and important one, I think, because, uh, you know, each side sort of depends on the other. The to- one of the reasons that both parties are holding together to the extent they are is because they look over the aisle and think, oh, my God, that is the worst possible person we could have reading our country. And, you know, if you had a, a moderate Labour leader now, the Tory party would not be holding together as well as it is now, and vice versa. Uh, So there's a curious sort of mutual need between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. In a sense, what the Labour Party were doing at their conference this week until the Supreme Court court judgment was doing what the Tories did back in January, which is Brexit as a cipher for a leadership contest. Um, Maddie, why don't the government just introduce a one-line bill with the election date written into law for before the 31st and then Labour will have to back it? I mean, that that obviously is is an option for them. I mean, I still think that there is a question about whether they would be able to get a majority for that, given that um, even if they say a spe- specified date, I do think that the opposition parties have been very, very clear that they want to know an extension is guaranteed before they support an election. I mean, the, the problem for the government in doing that is that that would be amendable because a bill has to go through the Commons and the Lords. So MPs, opposition MPs could include, for example, another clause around asking 
asking for an extension so you could actually say, well, we'll have to do it. You know, we'll have we'll support this bill that says an election for the 31st of October, but you'll have to have asked for an extension, you know, a week before that or whatever it is or sooner um, and say they'll only back it in that scenario. I mean, they could also, for example, add in an amendment around a second referendum. I mean, it'll be, it'll be open to anything. Um, and as I say, we'll have to go through the Commons and the Lords. So I think that will make it quite difficult for the government. Um, and I think the, the problem is, is that MPs just don't trust him. So I think even the idea of bringing in a law at this stage, I just don't think that MPs, opposition MPs, will actually believe that he'll he'll follow the law. That sort of seems to be, whether or not that is what the government is saying, it's where we've got to, where MPs don't trust Johnson to follow the law, and therefore I think they would probably be concerned by supporting like that without knowing there's definitely an extension in the bag. Sorry. No, go on. It shows how febrile the, mm. the atmosphere is at the moment, that actually you could even consider that, because um, Geoffrey Cox floated it, not once, but twice, this idea of a one-line bill in the House yesterday today we were brief within minutes of him doing that actually uh guys that's not the strategy you know you've got the the attorney general standing up and not off the cuff having thought about disguiding the well a one-line bill with a simple majority might be the way through then within minutes you get number 10 briefing us off the record that actually that's definitely not on the agenda why because the penny had dropped it's amendable and you, you can boys it open to everything else the Attorney General, why don't you even think of that? It's extraordinary. I mean, it, it seems like chaos. We're saying, you know, Boris Johnson's language last night was calculated. He, he wants an election, he wants to win it, and this is how he's going to defeat the Brexit party and so on. But the Supreme Court ruling is is terrible for him on the face of it. Um, this kind of breakdown in the government, it seems, you know, Geoffrey Cox saying one thing in the Commons and then you're being briefed something about him. Is, is I mean, is he has he actually been damaged by the last month or? Uh, I don't know. Some thing? polling, isn't it, that suggests actually people weren't happy about the Supreme Court thing, despite him trying to shrug it off. But I think in the long sort of view of all this, you know, we come back to this classic statistic that most people, most people, think about politics for literally two minutes every day. Two minutes, and if two minutes every day is what you're doing, then all you're going to see is those messages. You're going to see surrender. And you're going to see, you know, a prime minister saying, let's get on with it. Um, and so this, I actually think just as Labour moved quickly on from uh, their own conference by trying to pivot to the Supreme Court, Johnson yesterday moved quickly on from the Supreme Court onto his real territory for the election. It's a really interesting question, isn't it, whether this, this will achieve any traction? Because on the one hand, you had the Hansard audit of engagement last year that showed that majority for a politician who's willing to bend or break the rules, uh, which was fascinating. But not not go beyond democracy, but sort of cut through some of the, the red tape of parliament and things like that, which was worrying. But at the same time, you know, the, the Ipsos tracker of trust shows that 86% of people trust judges, so they might not be the best target. And actually, hidden in the Daily Mail article today on the polling they had, which was interesting, they had the headline, you know, people about Brexit... Lower down in the story, also showed that 60% of people think the Prime Minister should apologise to the Queen. Yeah. And what they also buried in that was the, the headline voting figures. Yeah. Which showed the yeah. Tories were down to and Labour, and they were not much further ahead of Labour. Mm. Well, there you go. Do you think this was a dead cat, the language last night, to come back to mm, that? I don't know. I don't think so. It, right. it is that bigger picture of just dividing lines, dividing lines, dividing lines for an election. You'd need a dead elephant to persuade people not to think about the Supreme Court ruling that what he did was illegal. I mean, I just don't think that strategy was ever going to work. People are going to keep talking about the Supreme Court. Well, it's easy to forget that Labour held their party conference this week, and what a mess it was. Jeremy Corbyn will be counting his lucky stars that the Supreme Court came and shifted the narrative away from the bitter infighting over Brexit. 
Let's hear Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury causing trouble at the conference in conversation with Paul. Well, look, everybody knows what my position is on Brexit. I have been saying it um, publicly for some time now. I think that we should, we should have a second referendum, that, uh, that Remain should be on the ballot paper, and that the Labour Party should campaign to Remain. Paul, how do you think the conference went for Labour? Well, as Anand's already mentioned, it started off pretty badly. Um, and that's not just me being annoyed because my Friday night dinner was ruined by Tom Watson and the attempted coup. And I was You're having a nightmare this week. Friday night dinner, Man, know, Man United, Rochdale, Rochdale last Rochdale night. Matt's blown last night. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, duty, always Great duty. Great result for Rochdale, though. Yes. at Old Trafford, let's not forget <laughs> we, we, Let's not forget that, <laughs> listener. Not um, such a great result. I was expecting it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, in terms of the Labour conference, it couldn't have started worse, could it? Um, and then you're into the whole territory of, yeah, um, the party looks divided on even election. That's a horrible look. Um, but then you get into the stuff about were their policies extreme or were they populist? You know, are people going to like the idea of a four day week or are they going to run to the hills and think, God, that's that's state socialism? Um, Privatising uh, nationalising schools, for example, you know, is that really going to Labour convinced that's going to be very, very popular? Um, despite what all uh, the commentary will say, so it was a mixed bag. And then his get out of free, get out of jail free card was the Supreme Court ruling, and that energised that entire conference. Corbyn gets up, makes this electrifying announcement. They go wild, and then later in the day, makes his speech a day like a, a day early, and they all go off with a spring in their step. And again, it's about dividing lines, dividing lines. It, it meant that they had something to punch at instead of punching themselves. And I think. What uh, the the I'm not sure if this is deliberate, but maybe just hear this out as a theory. Today in the House, Corbyn st- struck an incredibly dignified tone when he was talking about the language. He got up, he made it. In, he was on the front bench to the government. Boris Johnson wasn't there. The government had a junior minister responding to Boris's use of language. Corbyn made it his big thing to be there. And it was, you know, no matter what you think of Corbyn, it was incredibly dignified performance. And it was all about unity. And it was all about dialing things down. And it fed into his conference message, I'm going to be a different kind of leader, a different kind of prime minister. And I think when it comes to Brexit, maybe he's got this thing as well, which is, hey, here's this thing about a prime minister using language to divide people. And he's dividing them on Brexit. I'm going to unite the country on Brexit by not taking a side. So the very thing that has been seen as his weakness, not taking a side, seen as incompetence or cowardice, is going to be possibly seen as an act of statesmanship. And I think that could be interesting for him. There was this neat line, wasn't there? We're not for the 52% and the 48%, we're for the 99%, wasn't there? Which I I thought was quite neat. I would caveat what Paul said in two ways. Firstly, I think the one thing about Labour conference that the planners will be really disappointed about is how policy got drowned out. I mean, I remember being struck that I think, I'm not sure about the exact page, but I think free prescriptions ended up on page 11 of the mirror. Uh, That's a big deal, a really big deal for people, and it was drowned out. So I think that is one of the issues. The other thing is I agree with you to a point on the Brexit strategy. It might end up being the least bad electoral strategy Labour could come up with. What I think, though, is it is a nightmare of a governing strategy. That is to say, if they win the election... I watched the Cameron years last week, and I was sort of reminded of the referendum and what it did to that government. 
And you kind of think Labour are volunteering to do the same thing themselves. Corbyn will go to Brussels, he'll negotiate a deal, and then open warfare will break out between the different factions whilst in government. And I think that might end up being very, very problematic. Um, So MPs have just voted to deny uh, Boris Johnson the recess he needs for Tory party conference this weekend, uh, which means we're in a bit of a strange situation that the Tory party conference is going to be going on in Manchester while Parliament's still sitting. How might that shake out, Maddie? Well, it depends really how um, opposition MPs then respond. I mean, they can obviously make life very difficult for the Conservative Party. They can take a lot of UQs. They can expect ministers to be in the House of Commons responding to um, questions. I mean, there was a whole discussion about whether um, they would sort of try and come to some kind of deal with the government about not having conference recess but having quite uncontentious legislation scheduled for the week so that actually Conservative um, MPs wouldn't need to necessarily be in the chamber but obviously that, that, that broke down and they didn't agree to that so it kind of it really does depend what happens I mean the other big question then is we'll expect Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday which is normally when you'd expect Johnson's speech so there's also going to be a big question for the Prime Minister in terms of how he deals with that um, so I think at the moment we, we don't necessarily know but I think, you know, opposition MPs can make it quite difficult for the Conservative Party. And as I say, ministers might have to be on the train to and from Manchester and London um, <laughs> for the first that. half of next yeah. week. Yeah. And Johnson could face questions over his friend Jennifer Arcuri. Let's not get into that today, but I'm <laughs> sure we will be returning to the subject. Uh, it's quiz time. Hey. Uh, it's a bumper edition today, oh, which good. producer JJ has put together. I don't even know what the questions are. Oh, excellent. So, bear with us. That's good. Uh, Is Paul looking at the answers? I'm not yeah, looking at the answers. <laughs> uh, no, I've turned my computer away. Well, yeah. um, it's <laughs> all. if he's got a quiz at all on his we're, we're, we're in the middle of conference season, which is why we weren't meant to be doing a podcast, because we are all meant to be resting, yeah. um, but here we are. Um, so, it's all about party conferences. Question number one. UKIP had their party conference in Margate in 2015, but what did their chief spin doctor, Gawain Towler, get photographed doing? Oh, hanging off a pier? Did he, did he get... Did he, oh, he rescued a guy that was hanging off a pier or something like that? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. He had to rescue MP hopeful Sam Gould from the beach uh, after he was caught by tide coming in as he tried to write We Love Nige in the sand. <laughs> Who wouldn't do that? (laughs) That was staged. (laughs) Good first question, JJ. Uh, In 1997, who did Paddy Ashdown liken in the Tory party to the three witches from Macbeth? Bonus point if you can say the line that Paddy delivered. Oh, wow. 97. No clue. Wow. Um... Would it have been Lily and all those right-wingers in the major government? Would it have been Lily and Redwood and, I don't know, someone else? No. Nope. Anyone else want to have a go? 1997 no Tories? No. Nope. And? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> it was John Major, Chris Patton and Tristan Garrell-Jones who were plotting to oust William Hague. Tristan, uh, Tristan Garrell-Jones. Jones. Wow. Uh, Blast from the past. And the line was Hubble, Bubble, Toil and Trouble, the Tory party's reduced to rubble. Oh, well, it was. It it just after that landslide, yeah. Okay, let's crack on. Who was the MP to walk out of the conference hall during Neil Kinnock's infamous attack on the Labour Party? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) What did John Redwood get mercilessly mocked for at the party conference in 1993? That's a Tory conference. Well, there was a Welsh not thing, singing the Welsh, Welsh anthem, anthem, not knowing the words, yeah, mouthing along with the exactly. wrong mouth. Yeah, and that's and yeah. yeah, he's badly miming along to the yeah. Welsh national anthem. 
why would you do that? Just don't do anything. It's like football. No, anyway, last Well, one. did you watch the uh, the red flag at Labour conference? No. There was a little bit of that there. And oh, really? Thornbury had a sheet of paper in her hand. Did she? Yes. They hand them out, to be fair, don't they? Yeah, it, they hand them out to a lot of young people. Young people like Emily Thorn. What was John Prescott's reason for having two Jaguars take him and his wife, Pauline, the 200 yards from his hotel to the conference centre in Bournemouth in, in Bournemouth 1999? Because it it he didn't want the wind to muck up her hair, is that right? Because it was a windy yeah, seafront? it's correct. The, the wife doesn't like to get her hair blown about. That's not a very good accent, is it? Near enough. Doesn't quite answer the question, though, does it? <laughs> no, <laughs> certainly not. Um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. Get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. Uh, we're just going to leave you with Labour Deputy Leader Tom Watson mocking a botched attempt by Jeremy Corbyn's allies to oust him on the eve of party conference. You know, I, it is a little bit amazing how they keep talking about this deputy leader thing. So last year they wanted two deputies, this year they want more deputies. Uh, I don't know how many deputies they want next year. At one point I thought we might have a board of deputies. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't sure whether Ruth would laugh at that one, but she did. <laughs> so I got away with it. Can I get away with it? On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns.